You're listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. This is episode nine of Ohio vs. the World, an Ohio history podcast. And today we are talking about Ohio versus Jim Crow. We are going to look at the 1964 Civil Rights Act, everything that led to its passing, everything going on around it, and the central role of Piqua, Ohio's congressman, Bill McCulloch. How he helped draft the bill, how he refused to compromise, and how he actually passed the vote over incredible racism through his just dogged determination. Guys, don't forget, get on iTunes when you listen to us and rate and review the show. Um, even just a slight short review really helps bump us up in the rankings. We are really moving up fast with all the listeners we have. We appreciate it so much. But give us a quick review of the show. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. And don't forget, if you need to talk to me, email me at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Uh, if you have show ideas, guest ideas, questions, uh, let me know. In a letter written in 1971, when Jackie O., Jackie Kennedy Onassis learned that Bill McCullough was retiring from the Congress after he suffered a fall. She wrote him an emotional letter while aboard her yacht, the Christina, in the Mediterranean. McCullough never released this letter. It was found later after he passed away. We'll read that letter to you. Um, but what was it about this five foot seven, white haired, spectacled Ohioan that helped us? enter an age where equality was possible. How did this man from one of the whitest congressional uh, districts in the country, how was he such a major figure in the civil rights movement? Today we're talking about Ohio versus Jim Crow and race relations in this country. They're still on the front page. We still have major issues with, with race relations. But this episode will talk about how we began the process of overcoming them, how the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the role of Bill McCulloch allowed us to begin to move forward. It was 100 years after, 101 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, before this landmark legislation was passed, that basically put federal enforcement behind protecting people's civil rights, African Americans, women, minorities. 101 years of delay on the part of Congress, presidents, and really a, a lot of the country's citizens. When the Civil Rights Act was passed and signed by LBJ in 1964, the two people who received the first pens and the two people that directly behind him as he signed it were Dr. Martin Luther King and Ohio's Congressman Bill McCulloch, the subject of today's episode. He was central in not just the House, but the Senate in getting this bill passed and getting it through an 81-day filibuster in the Senate. The longest filibuster in the history of American politics, even to this day. So again, when you think we're gridlocked now, imagine nearly 12, 13 weeks of, of filibustering by one party. 
In this, uh, in this case, it was the Southern Democrats. Um, but imagine 81 days and on the Senate floor of a filibuster. Our guest today, we're talking to Jim Dickey from New Bremen, Ohio, who worked for the congressman in 1966, 1967, and has done so much work to help promote his legacy and let people know about him. Because I didn't know about Congressman McCulloch at all. Never heard of him. Until this Christmas, I got a book for my in-laws, Dave and Karen. They know I love Ohio history, and they gave me a book that Jim had actually helped get published, funded, um, and written uh, by Mark Bernstein called McCulloch of Ohio. And it tells the story of the incredible congressman and, and the courage that he showed uh, to get all this stuff done, to get civil rights finally passed in 1964. And also, we'll look at what it was like in the early 60s, uh, in the South, in the segregation. We're going to look at the Freedom Summer of 1964, SNCC, and the, all these volunteers who went down to register voters in Mississippi. An incredibly courageous story that also has roots in the Buckeye State. Uh, our beer for this episode, we are looking at Rheingeist Brewery, a great brewery, very popular, uh, out of Cincinnati. And we are drinking their beer called Truth. Uh, Truth is their IPA. It's actually the first Rheingeist I ever had. Um, it's kind of a Western IPA almost. Um, it's got some a little bit of a fruity aroma, but man, it's good. Strong ABV at 7.2, um, you know, alcohol percentage, but one of my favorite Ohio beers. Go visit their brewery. It's an awesome multi-level, basically adult playground uh, in the Over the Rhine District, just north of downtown Cincinnati. Uh, they are great guys. You can find it a Rheingeist of some kind in just about any uh, bar here in Columbus or across the state. Um, and they're doing great work, and they seem like really nice guys. So congrats to them, uh, and that's a great first beer I ever had at Rheingeist was The Truth, the IPA. So go check it out. So without further ado, we're going to get Episode 9 kicked off. We are going to look at the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and how Ohio helped to stem the tide of hundreds of years of segregation Poor treatment of African Americans. In episode nine, how Ohio defeated Jim Crow. Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. She told him that she knew that he, more than any other single person in Congress, was probably responsible for these bills. When Jackie O, Jackie Kennedy Onassis, learned that Bill McCulloch was retiring from the Congress after he suffered a fall, she wrote him an emotional letter while aboard her yacht, the Christina, in the Mediterranean. McCulloch never released this letter. It was found later after he passed away. 
But what was it about this five foot seven, white-haired, spectacled Ohioan that helped us enter an age where equality was possible? How did this man, how was he such a major figure in the civil rights movement? But McCullough now aged in 1970, suffers a fall, and, dis- and announces that he will not run again. Um, he is to leave the Senate in 1970, or the Congress in 1971. And it was at this time, while she's in the Mediterranean, that our former First Lady, Jackie O, and while on her yacht, she pens this letter. Please forgive the emotional tone of this letter, but I want you to know how much your example means to me. I know that you, more than anyone, were responsible for the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. You made a personal commitment to President Kennedy in October 1963 against all the interests of your district. When he was gone, your personal integrity and character were such that you held to that commitment, despite enormous pressure and political temptations not to do so. There were so many opportunities to sabotage the bill without appearing to do so, but you never took them. On the contrary, you brought everyone else along with you. And as for my dear Jack, it is a precious thought to me that in the last month of his life, when he had so many problems that seemed insoluble, he had the shining gift of your nobility to give him the hope and faith he needed to carry on. May I thank you with all of my heart, and may God bless you. Jackie. When we use the word Jim Crow, you hear the word Jim Crow laws, but it wasn't even just the laws. Jim Crow was a culture, a world. And although it was primarily in the South, it was all over the country. Even in where I live in Columbus, growing up, you know, my grandparents, they saw colored only bathrooms. Black people not allowed to go to the same pool. But to understand how Jim Crow started, at the end of the Civil War, Federal troops remained in the southern states. They tried to bring calm, and they tried to bring the races together, and they tried to repair the South, which was obviously destroyed during the war. African Americans were freed. Slavery was outlawed. Um, And things did change. And up until 1877, when federal troops were removed from the South, we saw things like our first African American senator in in 1870 congressmen. African Americans were registered to vote, but Reconstruction ends in 1877, and there is no federal law that's going to make the states behave in a certain way. And the federal government does not have the stomach for it. And when the troops are removed, a world begins known as Jim Crow. African Americans are taken off the voting rolls. They're intimidated, beaten, hung, killed if they try to vote. They're not allowed to gather in large groups. They can't get certain jobs. They certainly can't sit at the same restaurants, stay at the hotels. The world that we know as Jim Crow begins after Reconstruction ends. But this was the world that Bill McCullough was born into. William McCullough, born in 1901 in Holmes County, Ohio, in kind of Northeast Ohio, Amish country, um, is what it's known for today. Um, And Bill goes to the nearby College of Worcester, where I was a graduate in 2003. Um, He goes in the early 1920s and gets his bachelor's degree from from that fine institution. Bill McCullough is a fighting Scot of Worcester. He attends law school in Columbus at Ohio State, and after getting great grades, he graduates 
and looking for a job in the 1920s, he moves to Jacksonville, Florida. Bill McCullough comes from a family of abolitionists. His family um, very much against slavery throughout the 19th century. But they lived in a very white world. I mean, Holmes County, Ohio is one of the whitest places in the country. Um, as was the College of Worcester at the time. Um, very few minorities at the College of Worcester in the 1920s. He comes to Columbus, goes to law school, and moves down south to Jacksonville, which is where I really feel the story of Bill McCullough begins. He gets a job as a lawyer down there, and he sees the Jim Crow world. 1920s Florida. Um, Florida was not very populated throughout the Civil War um, and through the 19th century, but it sees a huge population boom, really its first boom. But these years he spent in Jacksonville, we asked Jim Dickey, about those years and how they helped form what became one of the great civil rights pioneers of our time. Well, he, he, his family had been abolitionists during the Civil War, so uh, the, the family um, antipathy for slavery had been there for some time. Holmes County uh, was known as a place where slaves were welcome to hide uh, as they were trying to make their way to Canada or make their way in, to freedom in other ways. And, uh, and so I think he already had uh, a, a sense of the injustice of all of this. But then, of course, when he was in Florida, uh, it was the first time he'd really ever seen uh, segregated facilities and, uh, and the sort of um, uh, demeaning behavior that wasn't even covered with a veneer of civility. Yeah, this Jim Crow world. Yeah, the Jim Crow world. And uh, he, he was very moved by it. He did not leave a lot in the way of writings uh, documenting his feelings about that. He was not a... Um, uh, his whole generation weren't the kind of people that uh, talked about their feelings as much as our generation does. But uh, clearly, uh, from the time he was in Jacksonville until he, uh, um, uh, and when he came back to Ohio, uh, the, uh, the feelings about uh, inequality were uh, uh, very much on his mind. As we mentioned earlier, our guest, Jim Dickey, um, who knows just so much about this subject, but he also lived it. He worked for the congressman in D.C., in 1967, 1966, um, he worked on fair housing with the congressman, um, and he was there to see him in action. And Jim has done so much to promote and let people know about the congressman, who, who a lot of people have never heard of, even though he died just 40 years ago. Um, we asked Jim what it was like to work for Congressman McCullough, what kind of boss he was, and just his time in Washington, D.C. He was... Um... He was a really kind man. He was a good boss. Uh, uh, it was a very small staff. You have to remember uh, congressional districts were a different deal in those days because there were a smaller number of constituents. The, the country had a population of about half the size that it has today. So roughly today congressional districts are, are the same physical size, but they have twice as many people in them each. And... Um, you know, there weren't congressional offices in the district, only the Washington office, uh, and the staffs were very small. He, uh, he had a, repu uh, 
I should say, a reputation in D.C. You know, they give you a certain amount of money to run your office, and almost every year he returned a portion of that. So he ran a thrifty office. I'm sure you weren't getting paid a lot. Oh, I was on salary. I think I was paid $115 a month. If you visit the State House in downtown Columbus today, outside of the chambers of the Ohio Senate and the Ohio, of the Ohio House of Representatives, there sits a bust, a bust of a young William McCulloch, and a plaque telling about his years in Columbus, his years in the State House. It was our guest who recently got that bust put up right outside of the chambers. Um, and we asked our guest, Jim Dickey, uh, about his years <clears throat> when he first gets involved in politics, when he goes to Columbus as a state representative. He becomes the youngest uh, Speaker of the Ohio House, wow. and to that point, they had never had a Speaker of the Ohio House um, uh, for more than one term. And he was the first uh, person not only to be the youngest, but to be reelected to a second term. I think he ends up serving three uh terms as the Speaker of the House, if I, if I remember correctly. I think you're correct, yeah. The youngest Speaker of the House in Ohio history decides to leave politics, and he joins the war effort. World War II, in 1943, Bill McCullough decides that he must serve his country, um, and he gives up politics, and he leaves. He goes through basic training, and he leaves for Europe. That he left the Speakership and became a joined the army for during world war ii uh talk about i mean his war experience i mean that's pretty old to become a, an army captain it's kind of amazing actually when you think about it uh but uh i think uh he knew that they were going to need people for the political occupation uh who were attorneys and who had his skills and they couldn't just send a bunch of diplomats. Uh, he, interestingly enough, he went for basic training with the monuments men, the men who were being trained to look for the hidden art treasures. And so uh, McCullough never really talked about it, but uh, those guys and gals were all uh, intimately connected with, uh, with McCullough. He went to uh, Paris and actually uh, was a part of the occupation uh, administration until they could get the French government up and running again. Bill McCullough returns from the war and in 1947 wins election to the United States Congress as the United States representative from the 4th District. Still living in his, working as a lawyer in Piqua, Ohio, he represents the 4th District, cities like Sydney and Troy, uh, even Lima at that time was part of his district. And he goes to Washington. In civil rights, he ends up on the Judiciary Committee. And civil rights was a major, major policy initiative for him. you got to remember, the 1950s is when we see people like the Little Rock Five. When we see giant protests begin in the South. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. comes to fame. But people can't even go to public schools following the Brown versus Board of Education decision uh, without armed federal intervention. Guards walking kids into the Little Rock into Little Rock schools. We see it all over the South, and then one of the main main leaders and main voices of the segregation movement is Alabama Governor George Wallace. Wallace stands in front of the University of Alabama and will not allow two African American students who are accepted into the school to register. 
This type of stuff happening in the early 60s, you would see it on the news every single day. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. message back to Washington by our representatives who are here with us today, that from this day we are standing up, and the heel of tyranny does not fit the neck of an upright man, that we intend to take the offensive and carry our fight for freedom across this nation, wielding the balance of power we know we possess in the Southland, that we not the insipid block voters of some sections will determine in the next election who shall sit in the White House of these United States. Wallace spoke for many Americans, especially Southern Americans, who did not want to see their way of life change, the Jim Crow world we talked about earlier. But Bill McCullough, certainly a Yankee, a Northerner, um, from Ohio, he was different. In the 1950s, when he was in Congress, he had befriended a, an African-American family in Piqua, the Clemens. Uh, we learn about this story from an article written by a friend of the show, Todd Klismet, wrote a great article on McCullough in last year's uh, Timeline magazine, the Ohio His- History Connections uh, History magazine. He wrote a great article about, about the congressman, and he unearths this story about a, a family, an African-American family that McCullough uh, is friends with. And he gives a job in his office in D.C. to their daughter, Wanda, which doesn't seem like a big deal now. But in the early 1950s, it was a big deal. We asked Jim Dickey about about the Clemens and just about that office working for Bill McCullough. No, that that is true. Uh, And uh, um, and I I knew her Um, to be candid. I'm not sure if she's still alive or not, but. she was uh, quite a remarkable young woman, and and um, you know McCullough was delighted to have her um, in a time when yeah, having, having an African American legislative aide would at least raise an eyebrow. continues to win re-election every two years rather easily is certainly a Republican district um, but he is beloved in Western Ohio and McCullough begins to rise his way through the Judiciary Committee and in 1957 and in 1959 McCullough drafts what he thinks will be sweeping civil rights legislation and in both years under President Eisenhower he is disappointed. When the bill is finally passed through committee, many times before it can even leave the House, and certainly it gets diced up and watered down into the, when it gets to the Senate. So watered down that it really has no teeth. It can't be enforced. All of the enforcement clauses are removed. 
the losses of these great bills, these moments where McCullough thought he had a breakthrough. Um, and he thought he might even have the votes in the late 1950s. They were huge disappointments. And they would guide him through the process in the mid-60s of actually getting the real civil rights bill passed. We asked Jim about those early disappointments um, and how they changed Bill McCullough into the civil rights pioneer that he would become in the mid-1960s. Uh, Eisenhower civil rights bill uh, had been a big disappointment to uh, Bill McCullough because it had come before the committee and they had passed a strong bill through the House, uh, a bill actually that caused some backlash for some of their members. They did it with bipartisan uh, support. Actually, more Republicans voted for it than Democrats. And it went to the House, it went to the Senate, and in the Senate, uh, they stripped away all of the important provisions, uh, including the enforcement provisions. Uh, and um, ironically, it was uh, Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson who did that um, because of his own aspirations uh, to get the Democratic presidential nomination in 1960. President Kennedy is elected in 1960 a close win over, over Richard Nixon. But JFK is slow to move on civil rights. He's a cold warrior. He has budget issues. He does not, do, him and Bobby Kennedy don't do a whole lot on civil rights the first couple of years, even though it's bubbling over in many parts of the country. This idea that Kennedy was a civil rights pioneer really doesn't take shape until 1963. But things are happening. The marches, the... It's gaining momentum, not just in the African-American community, but in, in, in the white community, among college students, among, among progressive and really Republican white people. It becomes a national, a national movement in the early 1960s as people see images on their television that they, can't, they just can't forget. Dogs attacking at young African-Americans, the water cannons, the beatings, all because they're peacefully protesting. And in 1963, Kennedy decides to make a giant speech and declare that civil rights legislation needs to be passed. It's on June 11, 1963, the same day that Kennedy's assistant attorney general finally moves General Wallace from blocking the door at the University of Alabama. That night, Kennedy takes to the airwaves and begins the process of ending Jim Crow. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities. Whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if in short he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? Who among us would then be content with the counsels of patience and delay? One hundred years of delay have passed 
Since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. The world was changing, but the South resisted that modernization, that desegregation was not happening in the South. African Americans were not able to vote. They simply were not allowed to register. There would be tests. They would have to say, okay, well, I want you to write the entire Constitution word for word. Oh, you've missed a word. You're done. Kennedy saw that federal intervention was needed. And in order to get a law passed, he turned to Pickwell, Ohio's Bill McCullough. And around the same time as his speech in the summer of 63, he sends Robert Kennedy's number two at the, at the Justice Department, Assistant Attorney General Burke Marshall, to Piqua, Ohio, to try and form an alliance with the Ohio congressman. We asked Jim Dickey about this important meeting um, between the Kennedy administration and McCullough and the alliance and how it begins the process of repealing Jim Crow. So... When 1963 came around and, and John Kennedy, of course, was in the White House and the Kennedy administration was coming to the idea that there should be a civil rights bill kind of late, they, it wasn't something that had come up until then. Um, they knew that they had to have Republican support or it was going to be dead in the water because the Republicans were going to have to supply most of the votes. Uh, and uh, Nicholas Katzenbach, who worked for Bobby Kennedy, and uh, uh, asked Burke Marshall uh, to uh, come to Piqua and visit with McCullough. And uh, McCullough sat with him in his office and said that he would support the bill uh, uh, if there were conditions. Condition number one was that uh, they, were, when uh, the bill was passed, they would talk about how it had been passed on a bipartisan basis. They would not try to take all the credit. Uh, condition number two was that uh, no changes would be made to the bill, either in the House or the Senate, without his personal approval. And that's a pretty strong move, but... Is also that comes back from the those the fifty seven and the fifty nine Eisenhower uh, Civil Rights Act that you know basically that got stripped away for you know after McCullough had passed a strong bill. That's right. As we remain in that summer of nineteen sixty three, in August of nineteen sixty three is the famous March on Washington. We cannot do a show about the civil rights movement without discussing that incredible day. Martin Luther King addressing two hundred and fifty thousand. African-American, white, men, women, Americans. His famous I Have a Dream speech. But also just that day and how important it was, and it showed that it was a national movement. That was August 28, 1963. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slaves. 
the dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream And in 1963, as Bill McCullough and the Judiciary Committee began to discuss the Civil Rights Act, Bill McCullough begins drafting those important acts. The South girds for a battle, and they go back to their old arguments about states' rights and about basically a lot of the same arguments that were used in the Civil War. We listen here as Wallace discusses his idea of the validity of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This Civil Rights Bill will wind up putting a homeowner in jail because he doesn't sell his home to someone that some bureaucrat thinks he ought to sell it to. My friends, a man's home is his castle, and he ought to be a... And he ought to be able to sell it to people with blue eyes and green teeth if he wants to. It's his home. We were talking with Jim Dickey about, about this period um, leading up to the, really, the battle to get it passed. And he made a great analogy, a modern analogy, about some of these bills we've seen in the states where people can deny service to, you know, whether it's homosexuals or LGBTQ you know, people that, that they don't want to serve. And I asked Jim kind of about the a modern uh, analogy of, of the Civil Rights Act and the arguments against passing it. States' rights was a major issue in this debate, was it not? Uh, it is, as, as it is still today. I mean, I, I have to admit, uh, I, you know, I rolled my eyes when this big conversation was going on uh, about uh, wedding cakes and gay rights because... The arguments that were being used were the same arguments that were being used by barbers who didn't want to cut black people's hair. Um, you know, uh, our Constitution is pretty clear that we're beyond all of that, uh, yet uh, we seem to have to learn the same lessons over and over with each generation. But in November 1963, John F. Kennedy was shot and killed in Dallas, Texas. His assassination leaves Bill McCullough and the nation stunned. The civil rights movement seems to be on hold. His vice president, the former president of the Senate from Texas, Lyndon Baines Johnson, was the same man who disarmed and watered down and ruined McCullough's 57 and 1959 civil rights bills. Kennedy had dedicated himself, working with McCullough, and other Republicans to, to get a bill passed that can finally bring this country towards modernity and desegregation. But LBJ surprises everybody, and he changes course, and what he calls an effort to honor Kennedy's legacy, he begins working with Bill McCullough and his allies to pass sweeping legislation in 1964. I urge every American to join in this effort to bring justice and hope to all our people and to bring peace to our land.
And as debates begin in McCullough's Judiciary Committee, McCullough says, the Constitution, and I quote, does not say that whites will have privileges and rights. It says that all of us will. And Kennedy knew, and now LBJ in 64, you had to have Republican support. I went to lunch with my in-laws today, and, and my father-in-law mentioned that people don't realize that these laws, these Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 65, they were passed with broad Republican support. And without it, they never would have passed. Um, and McCullough was the man who drove those votes, who drove his party to do the right thing. Obviously something that both parties could learn from today, his integrity. We discussed how much happened in the Civil Rights Movement in 1963, but it really picks up in 1964. And the Students' Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC as it was called, decides to start what's called the Freedom Summer. And thousands of, of college volunteers and volunteers of all age, but mostly younger volunteers, mostly from the North, mostly privileged white Americans, join with SNCC and meet in Oxford, Ohio, where Miami University is, to have a conference about how they're going to go down to the South, they're going to go to Mississippi, and they're going to register African Americans to vote. We play you just a little clip from the news back then. It was something that they showed the SNCC volunteers, a video they showed them, and it discusses the situation in Mississippi, how few African-Americans can vote, why can't they vote, and how are these Freedom Summer, these kids in the summer of 64, are going to change all of that. David Robertson has tried a number of times to register to vote in Mississippi. Each time, he has been told that he is not qualified because he failed to pass Mississippi's literacy test. Technically then, David Robertson, science teacher, college graduate, master's degree candidate, and a fellow of the National Science Foundation, is illiterate. Theron C. Lind, circuit clerk and voting registrar of Forest County, Mississippi, is one of the most powerful men in America. He and the 81 other county registrars in Mississippi, as well as registrars in Louisiana and other southern states, have the power under state law to decide who can and who cannot vote. It was Theron Lind who ruled that David Robertson was not qualified to vote. Of the 7,500 Negroes of voting age in Forest County, only 12 of them were adjudged eligible to vote in the 1960 presidential election. If these 12 voted, they represented two-tenths of 1% of the adult Negroes in the county. And as the SNCC volunteers go to the South, they are met with incredible resistance, violence, threats, intimidation, and ultimately murder. The country is rocked when two white individuals, Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, are killed while driving with an African-American, James Cheney. The three men, their cars pulled over by the highway patrol, the police, and they are removed from the car and they disappear. And it takes weeks, even months to find them. And the country is outraged. These kids who did nothing, they tried to just protect, um, other Americans' rights to vote, and now they're missing and assumed dead. 
Lyndon Johnson sends in the feds. He sends in the FBI. There's a movie about this called Mississippi Burning with Gene Hackman. It's not very historically accurate, uh, but a very popular movie in the late 80s. And the feds finally do find their bodies. The country is crushed. Freedom Summer claims three lives. Um, We play you just the speech, a eulogy that was given to James Cheney, the African-American young man who was killed. We play you just a, a part of the eulogy and the anger to try and just make you understand that these people are being killed for no reason. And they're being killed by local authorities in some cases. It's not just the Klan. This is something that was organized by the police. And you can hear the anger in this speech. Don't bow down anymore. Hold your heads up. We want our freedom now. I don't want to have to go to another memorial. Tired of funerals. Tired of it. Got to stand up. McCullough and his fellow head of the Judiciary Committee, Manny Seller, Manuel Seller, uh, a longtime serving congressman from New York, a Democrat. Him and McCullough put together a civil rights bill that will have federal enforcement. That's the big difference. It's before it was left up to the states and it wasn't working out. And the 64 Act uh, includes ending discrimination based on race, national origin, color, uh, in place of public accommodation, hotels, restaurants. Um, the Justice Department is, is, is to desegregate the schools and, and universities. Uh, any federally financed program, discrimination is to end based on race. Uh, employment, again, employment hiring practices and discrimination in employment based on color are banned and now federally enforced. Um, the 64 law changes everything. And it goes, the form that McCullough had it, it goes to the full house for a vote in the summer of, of 1964, and it passes by a 290 to 130 margin, a huge margin. It shows the bipar- uh, bipartisan support. It's really mostly some um, states' rights Republicans and almost all Southern Democrats. These Southern Democrats who now would be considered probably Republicans um, by some of their leanings, um, not just not talking about race, but just the South has vo- used to vote Democrat forever. Um, and it's this race type of thing that begins that shift towards the South, which is now almost entirely solid for the Republican Party. But it passes and it's sent to the Senate. And we talk about just that process and, and, and how it got passed with Jim Dickey and, and how much McCullough, how much hard work he did just to get it out of the House. Most of the bill, most of the bill is what Bill McCullough had written. Uh, there were other bills that were floated. There was an administration version of the bill. Um, Nicholas Katzenbach uh, said later that actually McCullough had called it right, that it was their intention to uh, pass a strong bill in the House and then bargain away what they needed to in the Senate to get it passed. And uh, when McCullough said that wasn't on the table, uh, it meant that they they had to get serious from the get-go. You know, the idea was to fashion a, uh, a strong bill 
that had federal protections, and it's. The, I think people forget that it's the, it's the concept that for the first time the federal government was offering these protections as opposed to leaving it to the states as a states' rights issue, and it's it's in the in, it's in the enforcement when the enforcement is left to the states that allowed the South to perpetuate some of these injustices. Um, I think McCullough uh, just saw this as uh, the right thing to do, uh, the right way we ought to all be living, that uh, discrimination uh, in uh, towns like Piqua, Ohio may be more subtle, but it still exists. There's a recent HBO movie called All the Way, uh, starring Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad uh, as LBJ. And it's a story about this, this 1964 law. Um, and McCullough is actually, a, he is seen in the, in the movie. He has a speaking role. Um, but the story is really about the relationship between LBJ and now the leader of the Senate, Richard Russell of Georgia, called the Senator's Senator. He knew all the rules. He had kept any civil rights legislation of any meaning from passing uh, for over a decade. Stalling, using, you know, tactics, old rules, um, but basically not allowing anything to get through the Senate. And now he's faced with a country, that a president and a, and a house that is unified, and a Senate that looks like it even has the votes to pass. And this is when we have the world's longest debate I should say, the Congress's longest debate, an 81-day filibuster led by Russell in the United States Senate. We asked Jim Dickey about this incredible, incredible obstruction attempt by the Southern Democrats. So the bill gets out of committee. It's passed in the House, as McCullough wanted it to be, by a pretty wide margin. Um, the bill goes to the Senate, and McCullough, even though he's a member of the, the lower house of the House of Representatives, he still plays a major role in the debate in the Senate, which I thought was so interesting. Um, it really burned uh, uh, Everett Dirksen. Yeah. Everett Dirksen wanted to know what the devil this congressman was doing, having anything to say about what the Senate was up to. Yeah, I think one of the senators called him the czar of the Senate, and you know, <laughs> I think Senator Russell, who obviously was a major uh, opponent of the Civil Rights Act in the Senate, he, he said that... Uh, he took offense with, quote-unquote, having to clear it with McCullough. Right. Um, so to talk about his role once it's already passed the House and just those, you know, we talk about, you know, I'm looking at your the book you gave me here, The Longest Debate, and we get into it in the episode, the 13 weeks, 81-day filibuster. But Well, filibuster. this is where I think you have to give tremendous credit to President Johnson because President Johnson was uh, the adult Democrat in the room. And the fact that President Johnson was forcefully at that point in favor of passing a strong piece of civil rights legislation because of his own experience in the South and because he thought it was a legacy that he owed to John Kennedy after the Kennedy assassination. The act is passed, again, slightly amended, but everything's still basically there. And it's sent back to the House to vote on the amended version. And after some procedural wranglings by McCullough and Emanuel Seller. There's only 40 minutes of debate on the new Civil Rights Act in front of the United States House. McCullough is able to get a vote, a vote of almost the exact same, I think 289 to 120, 
six or something like that, um, it passes. The bill is passed in the House, and Bill McCullough, uh, it's another Ohio congressman, uh, takes the stand and calls for a, a standing ovation for the work of Republican Bill McCullough. And in a very rare show of support from both parties, including the gallery, everyone stands and gives a standing ovation to Bill McCullough, who's seated in the House chamber. An incredible moment. A man has achieved his goal, a righteous goal. And this is just, a, I think, an amazing moment. What, what a gratifying moment. Maybe the high, like you said, the high watermark of his career. Um, when it goes back to the House and they're about to vote on it, a, uh, a House of Representatives member basically says that we need to take time to salute the efforts of Congressman Bill McCullough of, of, of Ohio. Um, and he gets a standing ovation in the House of Representatives uh, right as they're voting on the Civil Rights Act. Talk about, did you ever ask him about that? I mean, that, that had to be just, uh, that was maybe, I think, his crowning moment. Um, certainly extraordinarily emotional. Um, I, I, I didn't know about it at the time I worked for him, so I never did ask him about it. Uh, his wife was uh, in the gallery sitting with uh, Mrs. Seller. Um, Mrs. Seller had given uh, both uh, Bill McCullough and uh, and her husband, Emmanuel Seller, Manny, they called him, uh, boutonnieres to wear, a fresh flower, so that everybody would know uh, who was who were the floor managers of the bill. And um, uh, if you immediately after the passage, um, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, announces that he wants to sign the bill, a signing ceremony in the White House. And they pulled together a signing ceremony, and in those photographs, you can still see Seller and McCullough wearing their boutonnieres in yeah. their, in their uh, lapel. I've, I've looked at that picture. We'll put a picture of the, the actual signing, because I think it's such a, an important moment, not just in our history, but in, in McCullough's, McCullough's life. But who else is there? He's standing, Bill McCullough's standing right behind Lyndon Baines Johnson when he signs that agreement. Who else was in that in those pictures? Oh, uh, you know, everyone in those photographs today, and there must be, oh gosh, there must be 30 people in the photograph. They're all deceased now with the exception of the Reverend Fauntroy. Uh, and uh, and uh, Reverend Fauntroy was there with Martin Luther King. He was a young uh civil rights activist in his 20s and he told me that after that signing ceremony he and Martin Luther King went out in front of the White House and stood on Pennsylvania Avenue and cried passes the most sweeping civil rights bill ever to be written into the law, and thus reaffirms the conception of equality for all men that began with Lincoln and the Civil War 100 years ago. Five hours after the House passes the measure, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is signed at the White House by President Johnson. Before an audience of legislators and civil rights leaders who had labored long and hard for passage of the bill, President Johnson calls for all Americans to back what he calls a turning point in history. We must not approach 
the observance and enforcement of this law in a vengeful spirit. Its purpose is not to punish. Its purpose is not to divide, but to end divisions, divisions which have lasted all too long. Its purpose is national, not regional. This Civil Rights Act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts, to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice in our beloved country. So tonight I urge every public official, every religious leader, every business and professional man, every working man, every housewife, I urge every American to join in this effort to bring justice. There's warm applause from members of both parties as the President sets to work. It is work. He uses nearly a hundred pens to affix his signature and date. The President seems to have mastered the art of just touching each pen to the paper. Integration leader Martin Luther King receives his pen, a gift he said he would cherish. The Department of Justice will enforce the law if necessary, and G-Man Chief J. Edgar Hoover is present. Another group of pens is reserved for the Kennedys, and the Attorney General is entrusted with a half-dozen. In this summer of 1964, the Civil Rights Bill is the law of the land. In the words of the President, it restricts no one's freedom so long as he respects the rights of others. Yeah, and, uh, and they hand McCullough the first pen. Yep, that's right. And if you look in the photographs, uh, uh, Les Aarons, who's uh, part of the House Republican leadership, leans over to McCullough and says, I'll take that for you if you want. <laughs> and, they're, and they both kind of laugh. And so that's, that's caught in the photographs. Yeah, I've, seen, I've seen a picture of McCullough kind of laugh. What, do we know where that pen is now? Yes. Uh, for many years, that pen was with the family. I was able to arrange uh, its donation to the Smithsonian African American Museum. Oh, which just opened this year. That just opened this year. And so it's, uh, it's there as a part of their collection. And it's enough to give me goosebumps the dried ink is still on the tip of the pen that's cool so and that's a, a great museum my wife and i were in washington right after it opened we weren't able to actually get tickets but everyone i've talked to said that that's just an amazing museum it looks incredible from the outside well since i gave them the pen um i can get you a ticket if you <laughs> want to get in <laughs> we'll talk about that after the show but the work isn't over left off of that bill was was a really a a voting rights act with any teeth. Um, the Freedom Summer, the SNCC, volunteers who would help people register were still having incredible trouble doing so in the South. And people like Martin Luther King, African-American leaders, were absolutely, completely angry that nothing was done in 1964 about voting. We can't vote. This was their biggest complaint. Um, we don't have the same rights of citizens if we cannot vote. But in 1965, they just didn't have the votes to push all of this through in 64. McCullough knew it. LBJ knew it. And they decided to wait. But the next year, McCullough is on the front lines again. We asked Jim Dickey about the 1965 
Voting Rights Act, which federally enforces all citizens based on race, color, national origin, and enforces their right to vote federally. And so, for example, um, voting rights, which is extraordinarily important to civil rights, uh, was uh, at McCullough's insistence uh, put off until 1965 as a second measure uh, because there, the votes did not exist to, uh, to pass both the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act as a single package. Civil rights by then had uh, a momentum. Uh, the real issues uh, were hashed out uh, about uh, states' rights versus federal intervention uh, in the 64 Civil Rights Act. So the thorny issues about uh, whether or not um, state, states' rights were going to prevail were already behind them. In the 65 Voting Rights Act, um, the, there wasn't even a veneer of high ground that the opponents could, could try to take with their arguments. It must be rooted in democracy, the most basic right of all was the right to choose your own leaders. The history of this country in large measure is the history of expansion of that right to all of our people. Many of the issues of civil rights are very complex and most difficult. But about this there can and should be no argument. Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. There is no reason which can excuse the denial of that right. There is no duty which weighs more heavily on us than the duty we have to ensure that right. Yet the harsh fact is that in many places in this country, men and women are kept from voting simply because they are Negroes. Every device of which human ingenuity is capable has been used to deny this right. The Negro citizen may go to register only to be told that the day is wrong, or the hour is late, or the official in charge is absent. And if he persists, and if he manages to present himself to the registrar, he may be disqualified because he did not spell out his middle name or because he abbreviated a word on the application. And if he manages to fill out an application, he is given a test. The registrar is the sole judge of whether he passes this test. He may be asked to recite the entire Constitution or explain the most complex provisions of state law and even a college degree cannot be used to prove 
that he can read and write. For the fact is that the only way to pass these barriers is to show a white skin. Following the passage of the Voting Rights Act, McCullough now entering his 20th year in Congress. Um, this is when our guest worked with him in 66 and 67 on things like fair housing. So. Well, we were working on open housing legislation when I was there, which ultimately became the uh, Equal Housing Rights uh, Act of 67, I think. I remember asking him as a 21-year-old kid um, if he thought ultimately uh, the, the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, would uh, be determined to be unconstitutional because it created preferences. And uh, he said, maybe, but he said, uh, things have been wrong for so long that we need to, we need to upend them and, and make them right for a while so that the society catches up. Bill McCullough retires from the Congress in 1971, the architect of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, a man who received letters from constituents in his nearly 97% white uh, white district, um, some threats, but basically, why did he have to do this? It was considered political suicide by people at the time, but McCullough kept getting elected because they did trust him. He did not care about what they thought about back home. He decided to do what's right. And that is what I love about Bill McCullough, his integrity. McCullough dies in 1980. Um, in Piqua, Ohio, and he's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. As you recall, he is a veteran. He served in World War II proudly and with distinction. And certainly, I'm not going to sit here and say the Civil Rights Act of 1964 ended uh, racism. It ended segregation. Um, it didn't, but it did start the process. And it changed the game by getting the federal government involved and they could enforce it. And now these rules had teeth. Before, when they left to the states, we all saw what happened. The Jim Crow world thrived for a hundred years almost. Some people say it's still going on today. Um, and they might have a point. But Bill McCulloch was a pioneer. And what he did at least began the process of making this country the country it should be. A country where everyone has the same rights and opportunities. And people who try and take away those rights will be punished. Well, Bill McCullough said on the floor of the House of Representatives, and I can't quote this, so I'll just paraphrase it, forgive me. But he said, uh, we are a country of many peoples with many opinions. And when we go to the polls and vote, we are given an opportunity to vote for candidate A or candidate B. We are given an opportunity to vote for or against a proposition. But it is the job of our elected representatives to hammer out on the anvil of discourse the, um, the compromises that are necessary so that everyone's lives can be better and that in the end it is not clear that there were winners and losers. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound 
from the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books which will we choose I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation today is we gotta go with Mark Bernstein's McCullough of Ohio um, funded, published uh, entirely the project of our guest Jim Dickey uh, it's a great book that really gives you the inside scoop uh, of Bill McCullough's time and the passage of these laws and how difficult it was, the political wranglings, the battles back home, and how McCullough fought through everything to achieve his goal, a sweeping federally enforced Civil Rights Act, and also the Voting Rights Act in 1965. The book, it's, it's a pretty short read, um, but it is excellent. We also need want to share, and we'll put it up on the website, uh, our friend of the show we talked about from the Ohio History Connection, Todd Klismet, wrote a great article in uh, the Ohio uh, Historical Society, used to be called that, their magazine called Timeline, last summer's Timeline, called Clear It with McCullough. If you don't want to read the whole book, you can just read his eight, ten-page article um, about McCullough's battle and how he got it done. Um, clear it with McCullough again we'll we'll put that up on the website and, and probably link it on our Facebook but a great read great job by Todd on that article um, and, and I love the timeline magazine if you're into Ohio history there is a quarterly magazine dedicated entirely to it from the Ohio history connection called timeline it's part of your membership sign up again ohiohistory.org and that'll do it for episode nine we have to thank our guest Jim Dickey um, former CEO of Crown Equipment, just a, an awesome guy, uh, still very active politically on a national level, um, and also a member, a board member of the Ohio History Connection. Um, so he's still doing Ohio history work, and he's done so much to promote Bill McCullough's legacy and just let people know that an Ohioan uh, had such an active role in the civil rights movement. Um, and so we hope that this episode, in some small way, uh, helps Jim with that with that project. Uh, we will actually, next episode, episode 10, we're going to talk about one of the great pioneers of women's rights, the first woman to run for president, an Ohioan, Victoria Woodhall. We'll talk about her incredible life. With uh, Our guest will be Lisa Wood from the Ohio History Connection. Uh, she really knows her stuff. She's really fun. Um, but Victoria Woodhall, one of the most fascinating Americans of all time. Um, and you'll learn about her. Uh, next next episode, episode 10. So thank you guys so much. Season one, we've got another four or five episodes left. Um, and we'll have another big launch party and do season two all over again. Uh, it's looking like it'll just be probably later this year in the fall or winter. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Share our show. Rate and review us. Uh, again, we're on Instagram. Follow us there at Ohio V the World Podcast. Um, and thank you guys so much uh, for listening. This has been episode 9 when Ohio defeated Jim Crow.
Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, Yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? (laughs) The Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripotis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.